Before you sit, let me read Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plenteous redemption. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. And now, Lord, take these simple human words, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, make them your very own. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated. For those who come to Lent sermons on Friday on the rain, you can be assured of your election, I guess. I'm glad to see you. Now, my brother-in-law recently built a fire pit in our backyard for us. Uh, we christened it last night. Um, so after the hot dogs had been roasted and consumed, uh, we sent our two eldest boys uh, into the house for showers. And then my youngest, Franklin, and I stayed by the fire for a little bit longer. And Franklin said in his own way, it's just you and me now, Daddy, around the fire. And I said, being overly pious in the moment, uh, well, God's here with us too. And without blinking, Franklin retorted, yeah, but I can't see him. But I can't see him. The Lord's people, says Spurgeon, have always been a waiting people. I wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. My soul waits. Hoping, waiting, and trusting. A triad of verbs that roll off the tongue so easily. But for those of you who have known those moments when Sunday school ditties or trite Christian phrases like, let go and let God, just don't cut it, you know the profundity of those three words. Hoping, waiting, and trusting. Yesterday in the sermon I mentioned a prayer journal that had been discovered by William Sessions, uh, Flannery O'Connor, a prayer journal that she wrote while she was still a master's student, a young, a young aspiring author. Well, one of her entries in this prayer journal, I read some of them yesterday, one of the entries that I wanted to read for you today uh, comes um, uh, in a moment of her despair, I imagine. O'Connor said, Dear God, about hope, I'm somewhat at a loss. It's so easy to say, I hope. The tongue slides over it. I think perhaps hope can only be realized by contrasting it with despair. And I'm too lazy to despair. Please don't visit me at dear Lord. I would be so miserable. The psalmist in verses 5 to 8 of our psalm is out of the deep end of the pool now. He's no longer drowning in the depths. He's on the far side of the crisis, of the recognition that his state is a sinner. His vision has now been rightly recalibrated with the forgiveness of his sins by a God who runs off the porch toward him. He's known the embrace, the tender embrace of the gentle Savior who doesn't mark out his sins, who doesn't measure him by them. 
The forgiveness of sins has led to the fear of faith, worship, holy terror, and all. It's not a fear that repels. It's a fear that that draws, a fear that, that fascinates us by the beauty of a God who stoops low to forgive sinners like you and me. We aren't worthy even to gather the crumbs up off of your table, but it's your property always to have mercy. The psalmist knows this to be true, and he knows that it's true for him. And what does this properly ordered fear This proper relation to the living triune God. What does it lead to? The psalmist says that it leads to hope. Fear leads to hope. That's such an interesting little word in the Old Testament. Hope. Hope's quality in the Bible is measured solely by its object. I did a little word study on this preparing for today. And was surprised by what I discovered. Whenever something in the Old Testament is hoped in, inevitably it leads to disappointment. But whenever hope or trust is put in God, then the hope is confident and sure. I mean, think about this in relationship to the, to the grind of our daily lives. I mean, think about the things that you put your hope in. During my seminary days, I wanted so badly to attend a particular university for my postgraduate studies. I visited the university. I had office hours with the professor that I wanted to study under. I looked at the university's webpage so many times that it got embarrassing. All of my postgraduate hopes were directed in one place. Well, you know where the story's going, right? I tell my students at Beeson that they sent my rejection letter even before I sent off my application. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with hoping in something. Our lives are filled with it. I have my son William's here today on the front row. He wants to be a major league baseball player someday. William, you hope away, buddy. But in the Bible, often our hope in things leads to disappointment. But to hope in God, now that's confident and sure. And before you check this off, as religious pablum, or maybe Marx's famed opiate of the people. Religion is just a narcotic to get you through life's difficulties. I want to assure you that the psalmist here is realistic about what this hope is. It's not an every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before kind of hope. It's gritty. It's grounded in the depths from which he's just emerged Hope is marked by waiting. I wait. My soul waits. My whole being waits. Yes, hope in God is sure and true. It's the one thing that we can hope in without any fear of being finally disappointed. But for now, the hope is marked by waiting, which in turn means the fulfillment of what we hope for is not yet. Martin Luther's reading of Psalm 130 is really marked by a theological and spiritual profundity and insight. I'm I'm completely taken by Luther's reading of the Psalms. I can tell that Luther spent a lot of time with Psalm 130 in, in particular. Luther links Psalm 130 and the call to waiting, hoping, and trusting that triad with Jacob's wrestling with God at the river Jabbok. You know the story. 
It's certainly a childhood favorite of mine. But Jacob the deceiver sends his family across the river. He lags behind. Tomorrow he's going to have an encounter with Esau, his brother. Who knows how that's going to turn out? And then all of a sudden in the narrative, Jacob is wrestling with a man. An undefined man, an undescribed man, a man. And so much of the story is enigmatic. Questions on top of questions emerge just from a simple reading. But this man, this angel... Let's just go ahead and put it out there because it's where the narrative goes. God himself cannot prevail against Jacob. But Jacob is tenacious. And though we don't know how Jacob came to understand it, at some point in the rest of the match, he knew that this figure was special. This is God. And finally, God says to Jacob, let me go. The dawn is about to break. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And now Jacob's fundamental identity as deceiver shifts to Israel, the one who strives with God. O Israel, the psalmist says, hope in the Lord. Luther's connection of Jacob at Penuel wrestling with God is spot on. Why? Because Jacob's wrestling match is symbolic of the identity of God's people for all time. The people of God are always marked by waiting and hoping, by striving, by wrestling with God into the wee hours of the morning, unwilling to let go, a watchman waiting until the morning. For Luther, and I should say for John Calvin too, Genesis 32, or this wrestling match with Jacob and God, is paradigmatic of the whole Christian life, a striving with God. A continued turning to him in hope. A continued stripping of the self in light of the faithfulness of God. I'm not sure how this would go or how effective this would be as an evangelistic strategy. But the promise to non-believers and believers alike from Psalm 130 is something like this. From whatever depths you are in, no matter how low you think you've gone, you can know that your sins are forgiven. God in Jesus Christ does not mark your iniquities. He moves toward you in forgiveness. And this free grace of forgiveness where your sins can no longer haunt you or tyrannize you because they are not the final word. God's grace is the final word. It leads you to fear and to worship. Not the kind of fear that drives you away or repels you, but the kind of fear that draws you and fascination and all. You can know all of this. And then once you know that it's true, your whole life will be characterized by a wrestling match with the living God. Hoping, waiting, trusting, a long night's wrestling match at the River Jabbok. And you'll have this wrestling match until the day you die. Are you in? How in the world can we have This kind of dynamic relationship with the living God. Forgiveness, fear, hope, trust, waiting, wrestling. The psalmist tells us, because with God there is steadfast love. Psalm 98 says, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? Because he's done marvelous things. He's remembered his own steadfast love. Why do we sing while we wrestle? Because God remembers himself 
The steadfast love of God is not something God brings to mind or pulls out of his toolbox. He is steadfast love. He is loyal love. It flows from his own self-determination to be the saving help among all nations. It's who he is. And his redemption, the psalmist tells us, is plenteous. It's more than enough. Jonathan Edwards, in a very moving sermon on the text that says, Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood. Edwards says this, One drop of his blood is a deluge of love able to swallow the whole world. I failed to mention today and yesterday that Psalm 130 is a psalm of ascent. These psalms were psalms that were most likely sung on the way to Jerusalem in preparation for a festival of the temple or some temple feast day. Passover would be an example of this. Whatever the festival, the destination was the temple. And these psalms were pilgrim psalms on the way to the temple. Now the Christian theologian that hovers somewhere underneath my own chest can't help but read Psalm 130 with its hoping in the word and its temple context with reference to Jesus Christ. Now some may think this is a tack on at the end of the psalm, but I believe it's at its core. This whole psalm moves toward the promises of his word and the hope found in the temple. Jesus is the word, John 1 tells us. John 1 also tells us that Jesus tabernacles with us, which is temple imagery. The presence of God in the midst of humanity is located at the temple. Jesus said, tear this temple down and in three days I'll build it up again. And they laughed him off the streets. Why? Because that's a long project. And then the narrator of the gospel says, but they did not know. Jesus was talking about himself. Jesus is the presence of God among humanity. He's our temple. He's your temple. And as we sing this pilgrim psalm, Psalm 130, out of the depths, as pilgrim our, pilgrims ourselves moving toward the temple in anticipation of the fulfillment of our hopes, in fulfillment of our wrestling and our waiting, can you see our temple waiting for us there? It's not what we expected, a temple built with hands. It's the Son of God. It's Israel incarnate and faithful, hanging on a cross between heaven and hell. Can you see the temple? Can you see the word that we have hoped in? It's Jesus. And he's wrestling with God at the river Jabbok. He's wrestling with God at the pinnacle of his cross. Our wrestling with God only makes sense in light of his ultimate wrestling at Calvary. He's striving with God on our behalf. He's not letting go until his mission is accomplished. And the Father, if you look closely, is not putting his hip out of joint. The Father is killing him. And in that wrestling match of Jesus at his penuel, he doesn't lose one of his own. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with him... Plenteous redemption. And now, O Lord, seal these words into our hearts and our minds.
Help us, Lord, to believe that they're true and that they're true for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.